Hello and welcome to QBD Book Club, the podcast. My name is Victoria Carthew. I've read a book and now I wish I could see it on the screen because it is so full of characters and colour and life and villains, of course. And not surprisingly, the majesty that is Violet Kelly and the Jane Owl came to us from a poet who has many other hats she wears as well. Fiona Britton joins me now. <laughs> Thanks to Alan and Unwin. Hello. Hello. Lovely to be here. Now, I've done my best with all of the jade that I could possibly muster because jade is integral to this story. You've got some wonderful sort of mystical things going on. So um, thank you in advance because it is the most beautiful colour and cover and uh, such a fun story. I think for you it must be incredible to have it out there in the world finally. Oh, look, it's, it is incredible. And, I mean, what a beautiful cover it is too. You know, I'm so, so grateful for, um, you know, the incredible work that's gone into it. Um, it's surpassed my expectations. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think, like, it's one of those things as well, you know, you know it's going to stand out on the shelf because it's so different from everything else that's out there. Yeah, I mean... You know, there's a kind of a cosy crime look, isn't there? So it's definitely got some cousins in the, um, you know, in the in the cosy crime aesthetic. But I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like it. So yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> now I said in the, in the introduction it was brought to us by a poet because you have had a long life uh, in and around words, haven't you? And and been working in the business, so to speak, for a long time. Well, I don't know if I would say a long time. I mean, I think, you know, um, especially with serious writing pursuits like poetry, you can feel like you're toiling away in a yeah. dark room by yourself for a long time. Um, I guess, yeah, I guess probably 15 years of giving it, a, giving it a red hot go, um, which included going to university, in fact, and so sort of funneling myself through one of those um, creative writing programs uh, but yeah poetry was probably where I've had uh, had my earliest successes um, which seems a great leap from you know genre fiction or into, you know seems seems like there's a quite a gulf in between but I would argue that there isn't Anyway. <laughs> no, well, I don't think there is because there's so much about the way you've written this book that the descriptiveness and that you have, you know, when, in poetry you have to get to the point quite quickly, right? You need to get the message across. And so much in the book uh, is like that as well. Did you always think there was a, a longer form, there was a novel in you? Oh, abs you know, I completely wanted to be a novelist um, probably since, you know, since I was a kid, but I, I didn't really think it would be a novelist of a cosy crime genre piece actually I thought that I was destined to write a very serious piece of you know great Australian fiction you know of a very sort of literary nature um so I surprised myself with this one <laughs> so where did she where did Violet Kelly and all these uh beautiful characters in this book come from well, I was uh I was at Varuna the um the writer's house um I was just at the very pointy end of writing my PhD, so um, finalising the thesis part and finalising the kind of fictional part. So I did a doctorate through University of Western Australia and, uh, you know, I have to confess to being pretty over it by that stage, <laughs> Des desperate for a bit of light relief. And, you know, I think I had, to, you know, you do feel a, a certain constraint around the way you write in an academic program, I think. You know, you feel like it has to sort of fit a certain mould. Um, that's right. And, you know, I think I think we all go, we all had literary aspirations at, 
in that in that sort of stream. Um, but then uh, one night I was so beside myself with kind of um, exhaustion and and stress from this this piece of work that I was doing that I kind of said, well, what would happen if I what would happen if I wrote what I wanted to read? What would happen if I wrote exactly what I wanted to write without turning off those critical voices so you know what if I experimented and was as purple and as lurid and as hilarious and as big on the pages as, as I felt I wanted to be and and Violet Kelly appeared she appeared in that way <laughs> oh that's so. fantastic that's fantastic and, and I think I mean there are so many other beautiful characters strong incredible female you know females in this book that we'll talk about so I love that all that came to you just by you thinking write what you know and that's so often what you hear about with with authors is not just write what you know but write what write what you want to read yeah, look I mean it was like I said it was an experiment and um it was my comedy side project um never really expected it to be the thing that um that people wanted to publish and, and read um I'm delighted that it is and I'm delighted to realize that maybe this is what I was supposed to write <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe it was supposed to be, maybe it was always supposed to write something sort of slightly funny and lighthearted and escapist and um, and and sort of, you know, pleasure-driven. So let's get to the nitty-gritty where it's I, I actually, it's quite a glamorous book in a lot of ways. You know, it's set in that era. Um, it's glamorous and it's gritty and grimy because there's crime, of course, we're on Crime Club. There's crime mm -hmm. and it's quite dark and dangerous but also there's quite a glamorous world as well and it almost felt at the beginning like it was going to be set you know perhaps in New York in in you know those kind of <laughs> glamorous era but we are in Sydney uh in in days gone by tell us about the the era and why you chose it oh I think there's so much here you know um Sydney in the 1930s for a start, it's something that a lot of us who live in Sydney know a little bit about, right? So we might not know lots about it, but we know a little bit about it. Um, for me, it's a time of, um, you know, pretty incredible girl bosses. You know, you've got Tilly Devine running girls, you've got Kate Lee running Sly Grog, commanding teams of men, right? So it actually was, in reality, a time when you had um, a lot of power centred in, in, you know, a handful of women who have gone on to be important kind of historical figures in our town, right? Um, so there's that, there's that gritty truth of the 1930s in Sydney. But on the other hand, La Maison de Fleur is a complete confection. Like, I don't think, I don't think there's really any way a high-class bordello could have survived in Paddington <laughs> at that time. So that is completely invented, you know, with all of its champagne cocktails and French knickers and visiting diplomats, you know. So you've got, on the one hand, a kind of a grounding in the reality and the politics of the time, and on the other hand, completely made up. <laughs> So we step into La Maison de Fleur, uh, a high-class bordello, as you say, run by a madame mm -hmm. who is quite a fierce woman, not quite as French as she might might seem, uh, which is which is Mais non. <laughs> <laughs> which is probably why she's uh, so businesslike and able to manage it. But she is an incredible character as well, and her lead girl, if we can call her that, is Violet mm -hmm. Kelly, and she is she is absolutely one out of the boxes, isn't she? Quite unique. Uh, you mean Madame 
Oh, both of them. <laughs> oh, both of them. Well, so I think, you know, it, one shouldn't have favourites among one's literary children, but I think Madame, quite possibly my favourite. I mean, Violet's great, but Madame is something, something special and she is really there for comic value as far as I can make out. You know, she's sort of... I, I found that she just wanted to have all of the hilarious lines and deliver all of the comedy. And I had in my head all, all, all the time that I was writing her, I had um, Carol Burnett in the original Annie, you know, that sort of Miss Hannigan character. Yes. <laughs> that sort of, I think you know what I mean, sort of tall, sort of um, always a bit strung out, always a bit haughty, um, carrying herself with this kind of incredible dignity and poise, but essentially, you know, um, come from come from complete poverty. <laughs> like everyone in that era, I mean, there's, it was they were hard times, you know, um, back of the war, back of depression, uh, and mm -hmm. these were really difficult times for anyone unless you were already very wealthy and they were the ones that tended to keep on making the money. And Violet Absolutely. came to Madame from, uh, from the, the most lowly of beginnings, didn't she? So that's right. So um, so Violet is uh, a product of the Catholic orphanages, um, which, again, is also a made-up orphanage but would have been um, typical of the time, I think, so connected to the parish. Um, uh, she and her sibling, which we'll talk about in a second, are, are both abandoned at birth and really sort of, I think, bring themselves up within the strictures of that sort of Catholic orphanage world but Violet of course is a um she you know has lots of gifts she's very smart she's very shrewd um she's very beautiful and um and quite determined I think to make sure that her start in life is not where she ends up it was quite lovely. I think it's really easy sometimes when you're writing a character like Vile, who is incredibly beautiful and smart, et cetera, to make them not likeable. But she was, like, I adored her from the moment you introduced her because there was just this kindness about her. And there's a lot of great stories of female friendship and friendship generically throughout the book. But she just, you made her likeable, which was really clever because it would be easy to not like someone who's that, you know, that gorgeous and glamorous. <laughs> well, and, and she's that sort of stout-hearted loyal um friend to to the to most of the people in the book as well you know so she's not um although she does have more than her fair share of gifts i think she 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 has this sort of character of um you know quite sort of determined stubbornly loyal um you know and and she feels like she can't let her friends down so yeah she's she becomes likable through those the actions that she takes to protect and defend her friends, I think. Um, it's funny when you talk about, um, you know, it is the world's oldest profession and I kept thinking, how are you going to describe mm -hmm. this? What, what level are we going to? It was very funny and very polite and almost um, powerful the way you talked about what the services are the women provide. Like you clearly had <laughs> a lot of fun writing about that. Look, that wasn't very, that wasn't easy, you know. Okay, um, okay. I, I didn't, I don't really have any appetite to write um, detail when it comes to like you know yeah. um, sexy and so on. <laughs> <laughs> but I actually wanted to capture um, the kind of real comedy of um, of what might be going through Violet's head for example so that first scene I think you know the one I'm talking about when she is has the Dutch sea captain 
up in her up in her room and she is entertaining him and um that was the first scene that i ever wrote of this book and and it that is how her character came to me in the sense that, you know, she would be thinking about how much money she had made. She would be thinking about how she didn't want her hair to get messed up, you know. <laughs> so this sort of um, quite ironic detachment from actually what's happening physically. So, yeah, I mean, you're right. I'm pretty coy about actually what happens. <laughs> and that's how I'd like to keep it. <laughs> quite lovely because it would be easy to because you know the, the you do there's a bit of darkness in here when we get to the crime mm. it would be very easy to change the book's whole tone completely when you made if you treated sex in a different way so it's actually it, yeah. like it leaves some power with the women in this book and these kind of likable you know scallywag group of women even though they're doing something that was frowned upon by the neighbors well that's right and I, I actually you know I think I'm probably more interested in talking about the way that they talk to each other, the yes. way the shows they put on, which I just find hilarious. I mean, you know, the terrible cardboard props and the, you know, outlandish costumes and the, the sort of, you know, madcap nature of those shows. Um, I mean, you know, that's that's where the interest lies for me. So. Absolutely. And you gave us a really interesting snapshot of the multiculturalism back in the 30s because mm. um, the, the other folks that were working in the house, the friends who were in the restaurants, it was very much uh, a melting pot, wasn't it? Well, yeah. And look, I mean, I'm no historian, but I... I, I, I have done the, the work to make sure that, you know, those those kind of multicultural elements are realistic. It's very interesting too because, you know, I think there's the setting, once you move out of the, you know, there's the, the, the terrace house setting, which is La Maison de Fleur, <clears throat> but at some point the um, the group ventures out to Happy Valley and, and I think that was a real melting pot. So that's, you know, a shantytown set in La Perouse. Um, so you would have had the market gardens not far away. Um, of course, uh, uh, the Aboriginal um, uh, sort of, I think it was an admission settlement or, you know, Ab Aboriginal settlement there as well. So, you know, um, while... While I think, you know, the, the clientele of La Maison de Fleur is probably much more uh, Anglo, yes. I think, you know, it, it's, um, yeah, there's, there's, it's, it's nice to uh, be writing to include what, what we know to be true in terms of um, multiculturalism at the time. I guess what does happen where the story gets, where it takes a turn is that trouble comes to town. So they need to all, well, you've got Madame sort of looking at her past at the same time we're discovering Violet has quite a past as well. And that's sort of where the intersections bring the story together. Yes. Well, I guess the kernel of the story is actually in Madame's past. So the kernel of the, um, well, the lever for the drama is something that happens in Madame's past. Is that, that's not too much of a spoiler, is it, no, to say that out loud? No, not at all. So, <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, so I, I, I think um, in introducing in, or, or the, the reigniting of a problem from the past causes them all to realise that they are in a fairly flimsy house of cards in reality, you know, the, the luxurious bubble of La Maison de Fleur um, can only survive and be protected under certain very sort of strained conditions. And and we see the importance of Madame as the sort of, you know, I sometimes see her as that 
figurehead on the prow of the ship sort of sailing along all through these choppy waters. Uh, but yes, yeah, trouble trouble is very much in the centre of the house by that Did stage. <laughs> well, like that flimsy house of cards because they are all mm. living um, an unusual life but, um, you know, quite a nice life for compared to a lot uh, in Sydney at that time. But there's always this kind of... Um, and I guess it was the times as well, that kind of edge of violence, wasn't there, and, and unruliness and people, that kind of distrust of the law, um, people when things are going south, people don't even think of going to the police. Uh, and there's always that kind mm -hmm. of edge. And that was very much the times, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think if you had grown up in poverty in Sydney, I mean, I'm speculating, but if you had lived Violet's life, I don't think that you would have any kind of trust in authority or uh, trust in police or I don't think you would feel I don't think you would feel empowered to go and ask for help you know that was but that was very much my sense that you know you sorted out your own matters and um, I mean I don't know I don't know the truth of the, the, the policing really in that era but um, you know it felt true to character that those that those people in the book wouldn't wouldn't seek help in that direction. They would rely on their own resources. Own resources, absolutely, because you couldn't always trust what the other side was going to do for you as well. I, I read when I was reading about um, you and the characters that you write, you love writing funny, fearless women who want to have it all. And I think that's what okay. you gave Violet and so many of the other women in this book because there's this incredible thread of friendship from the other girls that live and work in the house to uh, to the people that cook for them. There's this really strong friendship uh, that I, I guess we don't often think of in that situation. Well, I mean, I know that's what my life is like. You know, I'm I'm absolutely committed to my, my friends and, and we lift each other up. Um, I mean, I feel very strongly about that, you know. Um, yeah, I, I think that there is a there is an ideological element here. Um, it's it is quite deliberate. Um, uh, you know, you, you raised uh, fun, funny fearless women who get to have it all. I mean, I think that there's this kind of tendency in some stories to not allow women to succeed at the end. You know, I think there's that sort of I always think about that sort of Thelma and Louise story arc where if you defy and if you resist that you're going to drive your car off the edge of a cliff so I'm quite deliberately <laughs> I'm quite deliberately saying no in this book and in any subsequent Violet Kelly books they are going to be stronger wealthier happier I mean I you know they are they are on an upward trajectory and I am firm about that <laughs> Oh, I love that indeed. And there's lots of, um, I wonder if this if this comes from you or if it's something that's in your life. There are lots of mythologies. There's a little bit of Greek mythology in there. There's a little bit of superstition with the jade. Um, these are mm. you know, themes that you've threaded throughout the book as well, which also um, really play into the characters and the choices they make. Look, I, I, I mean, I think we're all a little bit superstitious. Um I know my family growing up was uh, was quite superstitious. Um, oh, I'm terrible. You know, oh, uh, yeah, you know, you had to, uh, you couldn't give someone a wallet without putting a note in it. You yep, couldn't, you spilled this, yep, you couldn't, um, 
Uh, you couldn't, if you spilled the salt, you had to chuck it over your shoulder. I still do that. Um, new shoes on the table, um, no new shoes on the table. No shoes on the table, absolutely. That still gives me chills. Um, no open umbrellas inside. <laughs> the list goes I actually, on and on. I'm, I'm number 13. I will not have the car stereo on 13 or the television. I won't sit at table 13. I'm the same. It must yeah, be a wow. thing. <laughs> My friend was telling me that you can't give someone a knife unless you do something with that. I can't remember what it was. But, you know, I mean, we're riddled with these kind of um sort of superstitions um so i mean i just think that i just think they're they're wonderful i think they're probably um folkloric in a sense you know don't put issues on the table well that's probably because they're covered in mud or or yeah, shit yeah. or yeah, you know, so you actually don't want that um uh yeah so does it does it determine their choices it certainly, it certainly is part of their cultural fabric and it certainly provides them with, um, you know, a frame of reference. Um, you know, I, I think I look at someone like Madame and I, and, I, and I think she would be affected by hearing her fortune read and, you know, yes. sensing some darkness in the future. I think she would be affected by that. So. And we talk about but all so these... So probably. <laughs> <laughs> and we talk about all these, there are some really great women in this book but and some awful men but there are some very good men in this book as well aren't there who kind of play those supporting roles and they're very important so yeah i mean i think um who are the bad well yeah that's there's some very bad men but i mean doc flanagan okay so um so he, he is a he's an ex-army doctor um who's sort of i don't actually really understand for myself even how he comes to be the doctor of La Maison de Fleur. But I do know that, you know, you can imagine almost him having his own spin-off series, you know, yeah. and it's it, and it's it's all about, you know, how you treat gout with brandy or, you know, how you tie knots or I don't know. He's just such an interesting and hilarious character and very loyal as well. So, you yeah. know, he's he's got that in common with all of the um, good, strong female characters. Um, and Charlie Hand, Charlie's Charlie's the one who, um, I mean, he, he I would try not to do spoilers here. Uh, he is instrumental, instrumental in the resolution. In, and in, beautiful in that, Albert. In high point of action. And beautiful, and beautiful Albert. Albert, yeah. Who, yeah, who we mind. all know is, yeah, I he's obviously in love with Violet and it's all, it's never going to work out for him. But <laughs> Now, you did say it before, so I wasn't sure if I was allowed to ask, but we will meet Violet again because I, I like one is not enough. One book of Violet is not enough. Well, so, I mean, there is another book, but uh, oh, it, it's it not sort of, it's not been formally, um, uh, what's the word, approved yet, so... <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure how I can, not sure how much I can really say about it. Um, but you did see uh, a future when you wrote these characters. You saw a future for some, if not all, some of them. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I think in sharing with you that idea that there's this trajectory that they're on, that they not only vanquish the bad guys, but they actually, you know, they see improvements in their lives. They find themselves able to help other people. They, you know, they acquire wealth and property i mean I, I i think that that's if you know if this series was to if this book was to become a series that's that's what i'd like to see happening 
Well, I, I, I said it off the top, and that's absolutely true. The the colour, the characters, the people. I was imagining those costumes. I was imagining that jewellery, the hair. I would love to see this on the screen. It's such a so beautiful and such a beautiful era to be able to to imagine and to look at. So when people say, uh, read the you see, you know, read the book before you see the movie, I'm like, okay, here's a book, put it on the screen because I think it would be <laughs> so, so awesome to see a character like Violet Kelly on the screen in the dark. So um, good luck with that and congratulations uh, on Violet and the Jade Owl. People have to read it to find out what that is all about. Uh, congratulations and thank you so much, Fiona, for joining us. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thanks so much for your company today on QBD Book Club, the podcast. We'll chat again soon.